What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Josh Hicks, co-founder and CEO of Season, a food as medicine platform that enables people with chronic conditions like diabetes to access healthy food through delivery services in partnership with their insurance provider. In this episode, we'll talk about the incentives of the healthcare system to support healthy eating, how Season was born out of meal kit startup Plated, and the role of data when it comes to at-home testing and ingredient-level nutrition data. Alrighty, I'm very excited to be joined today by Josh Hicks. He's the co-founder and CEO of Season Health, a food as medicine platform designed to help treat chronic health conditions by integrating with insurance providers and food delivery companies. Prior to Season, Josh co-founded and sold Plated, one of the first meal kit startups, to Albertsons in 2017. Josh, great to have you here. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Oh, you got a really fascinating background, obviously. I'd love for us to, to start off and kick it off with like how you took plated from this idea originally to the acquisition of Albertsons and then, you know, kind of what was the enabling trend that allowed plated to exist uh, within the D2C space? Sure. So get this question a lot. We started plated, my co-founder, Nick and I, back in 2012, which through mostly good luck, was the very beginning of the DTC era. It was in an era when Facebook ad rates were very, very low. Uh, and that wasn't some smart thing we did. It just was the environment. And so I think the two big things that enabled that business to work were one, the, the you know, relatively new channel that was Facebook. And two, people's desire for the product. Uh, like everything, if there's not market pull, product market fit, by some name, people have got to want what you're selling or there won't be a very big business. Uh, and I think people did then and still do today want to cook at least some, not everybody and not all the time, but some people do want to cook. And I think people have less knowledge on average than they did you know, in prior generations. And it's just harder. Uh, you know, Everyone's busier than they ever were before. We all work more hours. There's just a number of factors, I think, that uh, have led to people wanting to learn to cook and to do it more and also to do it, uh, you know, doing it a few times a week, cooking a few times a week means that you you may very well not want all of the ingredients and the sort of portioning that meal kits provides uh, is, a, is a part of the value. So somewhere in those two things, we had a good business. It grew quickly and ultimately sold to Albertsons. So I'd love to dive in deeper into, there was this moment, I was listening to one of your interviews with another podcaster, and I think you talked about that there was some moment where an insurance company called you up and said, hey, you know, our patients are, you know, eating plated, they're healthier, they're happier, they're loving this, can we get this reimbursed, essentially, what was kind of this unfinished business that you had from this and your initial success with Plated that, that led you to think that this might be the next chapter with Season? Most of that is true. Nobody ever once said, though, we'd like to get this reimbursed. Mm-hmm. We've still not heard that, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I suspect we can get into. But essentially what happened was somewhere in the middle of the Plated journey, uh, an insurance plan reached out to us and said, hey, we've had an awful lot of patients turn up at their doctor and say that they've gotten healthier. Sometimes it meant their blood sugar under control. Sometimes it meant other things. And the patient says, and this is all very self-reported. This is in no way a clinical trial, very anecdotal, but it happened enough that it got their attention. The patient would say, I'm healthier on these measures. And I think it's because I've been doing this plated thing, or that's the only thing different in the last six months. And the insurance plan was looking around and kind of going, we can't get people to change behavior despite a lot of effort. And really what they're after is lower costs. So they'd like you to be healthier. Mostly they'd like you to be cheaper. And behavior change has been, you know, a big thing. And these patients seem to be changing behavior, at least in a certain way, almost by accident. 
They didn't set out to do this. They didn't set out to change their behavior. And yet they did and found themselves with uh, at least a healthier, you know, they just found themselves healthier and they were interested in that. So they wanted to know what was happening, whether it was possible to scale, you know, I and I think our team didn't know hardly anything about health plans back then. So we engaged and now looking back, I realize uh, we concluded this then, but I feel even more strongly about it now. There was simply no chance that we were going to contract with a health plan for a number of reasons, but we learned a ton about it, ultimately decided that we needed to focus on the core business. So put that research on the shelf. And then many, many years later, after I left Albertsons, went back and sort of, you know, uh, revisited some of these ideas. Fascinating. Um, I mean, this is a huge problem. We spend twice as much on healthcare as we do food, right? And we have these two very disconnected systems that I think you're now trying to bridge and we'll get into that. But I guess talk to us about some of the biggest challenges getting between patients and clinicians and getting what I would, I guess, refer to as like adherence, right? When it comes to you should eat X or, or Y or Z. And, you know, kind of how season is, is connecting these two just very disparate systems at a high level. Yeah. I really dislike this idea of adherence, at least as it <laughs> applies to food. It's one thing to say people need to adhere to taking their medications or doing some other thing. I think food is different. It, it's fundamentally a consumer good. We all have mm. to eat. Everyone who's you know so fortunate to be able to do so is going to eat multiple times today. They're going to think about eating you know ten times today. It's it's part of our lives before it's part of our health. And so this idea that a clinician is going to tell you to eat less of this and more of that, and that, you know, it's on you to sort of figure all that out, I think is really in a lot of ways unfair. I think all of us to a large degree end up just eating what's around us. You eat what's in your house, what's in your neighborhood, what's in your office, you know, the most disciplined among us still do this. You eat what your spouse makes, you eat, you eat what's around, even if you're trying to eat a certain way. And the problem with that is if you live in a place where you're surrounded by bad food, you know, unhealthy food, you end up eating a lot of unhealthy food. And you can see this in heat maps of health outcomes and chronic disease in all kinds of ways. I don't think that's even controversial anymore. And so adherence implies, oh, it's all just sort of free will. It's all what you're trying to do or not trying to do without acknowledging that there's a huge social component and, and just environmental component to food. And, and I think that's you know, actually really important. Love that. So, so let's dive into the season. You're targeting, you know, two different su subsets of customers People with prediabetes or diabetes, which if you look at the numbers, I believe almost just under half of U.S. adults fall into the, one of those buckets. And then pregnant women. So talk us through like why you chose those two segments to go after in the market and then kind of what the customer-facing value proposition looks like. Uh, what does it look like start to finish? What does the experience look like start to finish for a, a member of your service? We're actually focused on diabetes, not prediabetes, high-risk maternity and chronic kidney disease today. And there are a few other disease states that we plan to launch over time. And the reason for that focus is those are the essentially the intersection of very prevalent, very common, and very high-cost conditions to health plans. You know, there's a, there's a big struggle around prediabetes as we're learning because prediabetes will probably lead to diabetes. But once that prediabetic patient has clinical diabetes, the full diagnosis, the odds are they'll be on a different health plan. And so the current health plan doesn't have very much financial ability to invest in prevention solutions for that person to avoid diabetes which is a, a very sad thing, but is also a very rational thing on behalf of the health plan. 
it, it's a business thing for them. All of the executives that I've ever talked to would love to solve this problem, but you know they're they're faced with shareholders and PL requirements and so on as well, uh, and can't simply you know do things that they lose money on. So we're focused on those three conditions today. We'll be more sometime, hopefully, in the near future. In terms of the experience and the value proposition, we essentially sell health outcomes to health plans. And what I mean by that is in almost all cases, 99% of our patients, they're coming to us through a health plan, which is paying for uh, everything. They're paying for the registered dietitian time, the medical nutrition therapy, the peer support groups, all of the programming kind of broadly, and at least a portion of the patient's food. The only thing the patient's paying for is any amount of food above and beyond what the health plan is paying for. And we don't make money on that. So we're not marking it up. It's not a source of revenue for us. So in theory, the patient should not be paying any more than they were before for food. We are getting paid by making that person healthier and, in theory, uh, less costly to care for for the health plan. Fascinating. So, what what are those current costs? Like, just ballpark for a diabetic patient, what are we looking at here? Order of magnitude, and there's a wide range depending on comorbidities and geography and all sorts of things. Tens of thousands of dollars a year to care for a patient with diabetes. Wow. Or, you know, and even more, depending on the severity of chronic kidney disease, you end up on dialysis and it's, you know, sadly, many, many tens of thousands of dollars a year. Wow. So that's a huge amount of dollars that could potentially flow back to season if you can, I guess, prove that there's a link between whatever the diets are that you're suggesting or the ingredients that you're suggesting and the recipes and everything that comes with it and the outcomes and to this like value-based care, I guess, terminology, which I'm not sure whether you like that term or not, but it's something I've, I've heard as a layman and uh, looking at the space um, being tossed around a lot. Yeah. Some portion of that flows back to us. Most of it is kept by the health plan as it should be. You know, we're a, a vendor to the health plan. So we help make people healthier through, through the food, but also through the clinical care. I think it's a really important part of it. The registered dietitian care, medical nutrition therapy and otherwise is really important. We drive outcomes and we, you know, have a financial arrangement with the health plan where we we enjoy some small part of those savings. So what does that look like when we look at like the consumer facing experience? How do you get onboarded? What does those first kind of steps look like? How am I even hearing about it? I guess first and foremost and then Guys, walk us through the the customer journey of going through this program and how long it lasts, and and kind of what that interaction looks like over time. You're likely hearing about season through some combination of your doctor, your health plan. Think the mailers you get in the you know the direct mail you get at home, and or direct reach out from season. So in some cases, the health plan will give us contact info. They pre-vet all of the marketing and will reach out to the member uh, as well. It's usually some combination of all those things. So you hear about us through those channels. You choose to enroll optionally. I mean, it's, uh, it's an offering by your health plan. There's certainly no requirement. You would attend an initial visit with a seasoned dietitian, and that person would Instead of just giving you advice, which is, we think, our kind of big reason for, for being, right? The advice is helpful for some people. Dietitians do a lot of great work today. Some people are able to take the advice and turn it into action, but most people aren't. Most people are not able to take even simple rules and certainly not very complex rules. And the more complex the chronic disease as a rule of thumb, the more complicated the nutritional guidance is going to be. Most people are not able to take that and turn it into action in their real lives. They're told to eat very little sodium because they have a, a new CKD, chronic kidney disease diagnosis. Most people don't know where sodium is. Uh, and even if you are able to, to you know, learn that it exists in these 
10 foods. You may not know what foods are in a restaurant meal. You're surely going to end up having a, a, a busy, hairy night one night after work and you're trying to get the kids fed and you're just busy and you don't know what, you know, everyone might eat. Um, you're running through the airport. Like it's just, it's just life. Like these sets of rules are not that helpful for real life for almost anybody. And that is the problem that we're solving. So instead of a pamphlet with a bunch of rules, what the patient gets is an app, you know, software changes everything. You think about the industries that have been changed by software, and you can kind of pick your favorite, you know, app on your phone today. Many of them have really changed how we live and interact with the physical world. That's how we see ourselves helping to change the food environment for the patient. So we can, through, you know, standard software techniques, AI and otherwise, help the patient find food that the whole family will like. Right. We take a bunch of preferences from them and then we improve on those as we see how they use the service. We can help them find food that meets their that meets their budget, their preferences in terms of how often they cook versus how often they're getting prepared meals, that meets their you know cultural background, right? Which is just another way of saying that they'll like. If you try to get people to eat food they don't like, people won't do it or they won't do it for long. Um and then also, by the way, and I think this is about the right order of importance that all, oh, also, by the way, meets their clinical recommendation, because I just don't believe that anybody sits down and looks at a menu and thinks, you know, oh, wh what were those like five things I was supposed to avoid as their first thought, right? The first thought is, oh, what looks good on here? Uh, I'm not supposed to have that thing or this thing. Okay, great. I've, I've picked out the four things that I might like. Now I'll think about which of these I'm allowed to have. And so we just make that all automatic for people. Amazing. The, the software-centric approach definitely reminds me of, I guess, how you think about, thought about, I guess, played it as being a software-first company as well, um, from what I've heard. And I'd love to like dive a little bit more into what that means on the supply side of things. So your doctor says that you need to avoid X, Y, or Z ingredient, or, you know, ingredient. Um, I'm assuming that you've, you have a lot of data on what specific foods and um, meals contain what macronutrients, et cetera. And then you basically integrate into these various services, whether it's an Instacart or it's a meal kit company like a Territory Foods. Just help us uh, think about how Season is integrating with these various uh, marketplaces and, and kind of first party meal kit companies um, and kind of what the tech looks like uh, from that side. I think the big unlock here, which is still underappreciated, is COVID. A lot of tragedy, but the silver lining is every single food company that survived, restaurant, you know, food cart, grocery store, everyone that survived has a digital ordering platform now. You didn't make it through the pandemic if you didn't have a way for people to order delivery, curbside, et cetera, et cetera. And so with those platforms come the ability to integrate in various ways. Some APIs are better than others. Some software is better than other software, but it's possible now. And that's what we're doing. It's possible to integrate to, over time, all of these businesses. And we're not asking them for economics again. We don't make money on the food. I think that's important. It allows us to partner with as many food companies as is reasonable or helpful to the patients and for us to not have uh, an incentive to push more food on them or specific food on them or anything else. Fascinating. And I know one of your in investors is the co-founder of Instacart, and I know that they they rolled out um, something, you know, sounds like very similar to Season where, you know, essentially it's a care cart where a doctor can add something to your cart and essentially send it off. I guess the main difference here is that they're not really integrated into insurance companies. But um, And again, to, to reemphasize this, they do not deliver clinical care, right? Like that, right. that I think is the important part, especially to a consumer audience. Like, yes, we are in some ways a, a food company or related to a food company. Uh, and everyone, you know, tends to focus on 
the food and how do you partner with these companies? That stuff is really important. We also employ a nationwide practice of registered dietitians. It's not a network. They work for a season and they deliver clinical care. They see patients day in and day out virtually and deliver, you know, best in class medical nutrition therapy and other forms of dietitian care. Instacart's not doing that. I don't suspect it's something they'll ever want to do. You know, we've been partnered with them for a long time. The work they announced is very, you know, helpful to us and, and complementary to the efforts that we have. I view them very much as a strong partner. I don't know what their future plans are, but I don't believe it's to get into the business of delivering clinical care, which is a, also a, a critical part of how our relationships with health plans are structured. Yeah, that's that's an interesting distinction. Um, and yeah, it's definitely. I'm curious, like, how, how, what those conversations look like. Clearly, there's a need from a clinician, right? That, that kicks this whole th- process off. And then you're handed off to a, a dietitian. How are they looking at, you know, essentially when they're treating these, these patients more as consumers and they're thinking about their lifestyles and habits and behaviors and their various patterns between eating out and, and staying at home? How are you figuring out, okay, I want to, give them groceries this week, or I want to give them pre-prepared meals from territory this, that week. Uh, how are they designing these kinds of regimens and plans? And I guess, how are, how are you even able to track that? I guess we'll talk a little bit more about some of the studies and whatnot, but how are you measuring success over time? Like what's, and, and what is that full duration? Yeah. So the short answer is you asked how, how are we sort of giving them this food? And we're not, we are not pushing anything on anybody. The patient is free to choose, right? Think about it this way. You're told that you have a chronic disease and there's, there's these certain things that you shouldn't eat. And if you do, like, they're going to do all of these horrible, scary things to you and then sent out into the world. And then you go into a grocery store or a restaurant and you're trying to figure that out. It's stressful. It's hard. It's time consuming. You know, most people at least wrestle with meal planning and trying to get enough variety that everybody will like the food, but it can't be too complicated or the kids won't eat it. And most people have some version of that anyway. And then you layer this on and it's just, it's hard. What we're doing is flipping that model on its head. Here's an app that integrates into grocery stores and food companies of various kinds. And everything in here is safe. You don't need to worry about, you know, like second guessing, the nutritional content of this food because it's all been done ahead of time for you. Uh, and we're doing that through, again, the implementation can be complicated, but the idea is straightforward, which is there's a nutrition label on everything packaged in a grocery store. And the nutrition of the raw food, the fruits and vegetables and protein and such is all very knowable. So we can do that work for the patient and present them with a bunch of options. Here's some recipes that we think you'll like. If not, tell us what you do and we'll learn and get better. The software will. Here's some recipes we think you'll like. And by you, I mean your whole household. Here are some prepared meals we think you'll like. And if you want to eat prepared meals every night, great. If you want to cook every night, great. Most people are somewhere in the middle. And we're just going to present these options to you. Your health plan is going to help pay for it because they've got real skin in the game to help you follow this advice. And then in terms of success, ultimately what matters to the patient is getting healthier. Uh, and it depends on the, the chronic condition, but it's A1C and other biomarkers for diabetes. It's EGFR and others for you know, kidney disease. It's, it's somewhat uh, condition specific, but there are measurable outcomes to the, you know, there are ways to measure the patient health. To the health plan, the ultimate source of truth is claims data. Is the person consuming less healthcare services? Are they cheaper? I mean, they care about health too, but you know, the sort of bottom line for them is claims. Uh, it takes longer to measure, but is very black and white. It's simply dollars and cents how many you know services the person consume. So makes a lot of sense. What, what if I want to order DoorDash or Uber Eats um, restaurant meals? Are, are those also potentially subsidizable by insurance companies uh, where I guess what's the extent of the, th- the criteria you're looking for when it comes to these partnerships. And I guess, is there any that I missed other than Instacart and territory foods? 
No, well, I mean, so first off, we're, we're partnered very actively with Instacart, Walmart, Territory, and to a lesser extent with a very long list of other companies. Again, you know, our model is to not make money on that food. So those partnerships are relatively straightforward. Uh, we don't need to go negotiate with them. We simply want to drive new customers to their doorstep. In terms of Uber Eats and DoorDash and all of these, the health plan dollars can be spent anywhere. You know, this is a clinical intervention. There's no regulatory issue. Uh, once it's all well structured, the patient can spend the food credit on any kind of food. It's all being put through the season filters. So it will be food that is healthy and safe for them. But Uber Eats, restaurants, you know, really wherever. That's fascinating. I would love to, for you to talk a little bit about some of the early clinical trials and whatever detail you can share. Uh, you have partnerships um, with healthcare systems like Common Spirit, Cricket, and Geisinger. I know that they had, uh, they were one of your early, the latter was one of your earlier partners, and you kind of took on some of the work that they were originally doing. If you could share anything about that, uh, that'd be awesome. There's, there's very little specifics I can share right now. Those studies are all in various stages of completion. But in generalities, I think what we're learning is all very exciting to us. Uh, and, and it's proving out a lot of the early thesis, which is if you make it easy to eat well, people will do it, right? Most people want to get these conditions under control. We're learning food is a great engagement mechanism. You know, the plans care a lot about engaging members and delivering a, a, a great patient or member experience to them and everyone can relate to food. So that's, that's a, a very helpful part of our partnership with them. And certainly there are a long list of, you know, smaller, more operational details around how we interact with patients, how we, how we're building the product and the, the staffing and all of that. But uh, sometime later this year, we should have some publicly shareable results uh, but can't can't talk too much about specific outcomes just yet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, anything with regards to the food pharmacy? I believe that program that you guys kind of took over from Geisinger and, and one of your advisors uh, started. Yeah, so it's it's Geisinger. There, uh, it's important. <laughs> so we did not take over the fresh food pharmacy at Geisinger. We're partnered with them. We have taken some inspiration from that program and, and, and hopefully given some back as well. Uh, but we do not run that program for them. That's a, a bricks and mortar on the ground program. Perhaps down the road, there might be a world in which it would make sense for us to administer some version of that. But uh, there are parallel programs that we run. So within Geisinger, we are helping to deliver care to patients that are outside the geographic you know, catchment of those physical facilities. Uh, there are only a handful of them. They can't serve everybody in Pennsylvania. So we're helping to serve, you know, more and in some ways different patients than that existing program. Got it. And then so you recently had a $5 million pledge that you are going to, um, I guess, take on a thousand members with diabetes, provide them with $300 of free food and partner with a company called Kit to do A1C and BMI measurement. Um, I guess this is a, would this be considered a, another path outside of the scope of the clinical trials that you kind, kind of are taking more of a hands-on approach with, or is that also part of that whole clinical trial uh, initiative? I wouldn't call them clinical trials, but this was our commitment to partner with health plans and fund pilots. Right. We as a startup, we have a different planning horizon than a big established company of any kind and certainly than a health plan. So this was us trying to make it as easy as possible for a health plan to say yes, to do a pilot with us. We'll cover all the direct costs. Uh, inevitably, there ends up being, you know, people costs and indirect costs on their side. And so there's still you know consideration. But this is us trying to make it as easy as possible for them to work with us so that we can generate more and more data because everyone all health plans need to see need to see relatively specific data sets that apply to their populations to make this make sense 
What are, what are your thoughts on other kinds of companies that are doing tracking of other sorts? We have everything from the Whoop Band to Levels Health. Um, we have gut microbiome testing, all this fun stuff out there. Obviously, th- these are things that are probably more preventative and probably further down the line for you. But is there anything like, I guess, how did you choose Kit? And, you know, what are your thoughts about some of those other companies potentially playing a role down the down the line? So we're partnered with Kit and a, a few other at-home testing providers. And those are new business models on top of existing or old tests, right? This is, this is standard of care today, at-home phlebotomy and, the, and variations around it. So I, I, I put those companies in a different category than Whoop and Levels and you know, some of the others you mentioned, which is not a bad thing in any way. I mean, we're closer to the you know, kits of the world, uh, at least for now. You know, we are focused on chronic disease management, not prevention or uh, a lot of the other things, which in, in some ways is ironic. I mean, personally, and I think a lot of the folks that we interact with at the business level, the health plan execs, certainly investors, so on and so forth, all have a lot of interest in prevention and, uh, you know, living better for longer. It's just that it there is no financial case. And I'm simplifying for sure here, but there's no financial case for a health plan to pay for preventative care. The, in pockets, that may not be completely true, but generally speaking, to the early example around prediabetes, the health plans need a very strong you know, 12 to 18 month ROI case. They're focused on the people that are the sickest. And in some ways they should be, right? Like they're taking care of the people that need the most help. Whether you or I live an extra one, two, three years sitting here today is not that relevant to them. So there's a category at least of companies that are focused on prevention and in that that world. I find them very interesting. I'm, I'm a customer of most, many of them, but their cash pay and uh, barring any huge structural change in the U.S. healthcare and insurance markets, I think they'll probably be, you know, cash pay for a while, I don't, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm nothing really more than a consumer of those services. Right. The business case isn't really crystal clear yet, it seems, to justify it. And then there's a bit much bigger opportunity, it sounds like, in the here and now of dealing with these chronic conditions. Um, that Well, m- maybe there's a bigger opportunity with health plans, right? I mean, I think that that is a perhaps non-obvious distinction, which is healthcare is about largely taking care of you once you're sick. It's not about prevention. That's not the, that's just not the big business of healthcare because the financial model doesn't work that way. You will change health plans every couple of years, either because you change jobs or because your employer changes plans. And therefore they can't make, you know, 10, 20, 30 year investments in you. They have to make one-year investments in your health. Uh, And in some ways that's sad or disappointing, but it's not a, it's not a negative decision they're making. It's just the business model. So you look at, you know, look at any of these devices that are telling you things about what almost certainly is making you healthier many, many, many years down the road. I personally think that's really important. I find it empowering. I've, I've, noticed improvements in my health through the use of some of these devices, but that is necessarily or definitionally my responsibility, not my health plan's responsibility in the current system. So I don't know if it's a bigger or smaller opportunity, uh, but it is a very different opportunity. It's a, it's a cash pay yeah. consumer opportunity, right. not a health plan one. Yeah. Harder to quantify today. I'd love for you to talk, touch on, you know, kind of Solving another problem, which is very, I think, related to this, which is, you know, food access and kind of food deserts. And I guess through through integration with SNAP, can you talk a little bit about your integration there? Um, I know that Instacart has also done this and that we're very in, the, in very early stages of a lot of these uh, online food retailers, you know, turning on the support because uh, there was a lot of, you know, red tape around it. But now it seems to be um, there's a lot more innovation there. 
Let's talk a little bit about the importance of, of Snap. I think there's a, there's a couple of different related topics there. So food deserts, the, the definition of food desert that I hear most often is having two primary factors. One is access and the other is affordability. I think, and we put out some work on this last year, I think on the access front, there is no longer an issue. Between Instacart and Walmart, they deliver to roughly 97% of the country now, 97. The meal kits and a lot of the more you know, shipped rather than delivery model companies deliver to 100% of the country. So there is virtually nowhere that you can't access fresh food, healthy food anymore. Next question is, at what cost? There's delivery fees, there's shipping fees, there's, there's other things. And that's fair. The way that I would think about that, though, is there are a number of at least potential ways to bring costs down. Uh, the most straightforward, in my opinion, is software. Software can go help you find those three ingredient recipes, which turn out to be what most people want to cook on a given night anyway. Most of us want simple and easy and tasty. So, you know, handful of ingredients, which makes it lower cost. Those kinds of things you can find. Uh, you got to sort through all the other, you know, recipes, all the other ideas. You got to, you know, find stuff with enough variety and so on. But this is a perfect application for software. So finding the right foods to make is at least one lever in bringing costs down. Uh, another, and this is season's model, but asking health plans to pay, uh, which again, at least in the case of a patient living with a chronic disease, uh, seems to be something they're willing to do. And then, Another category is the government programs like SNAP. So SNAP is important. It's a big program. There are many Americans that are eligible and using it today. Retailers have been able to take it for a very long time. You're right. The online landscape is shifting. But again, Season is not a retailer. So we're in many ways not part of that system. If you're going to use your you know, SNAP benefits at Walmart, you're going to use your SNAP benefits at Walmart. We don't really have a role to play in that per se. We're just a pass through. Right. Which I think is a huge opportunity if you think about, I mean, programs like Double Up Food Box and, and other things that incentivize people to use those dollars and stretch their budgets wider to get access to more healthy, nutritious foods. Because SNAP only solves one aspect of that, right? It only solves the 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 cost side. It doesn't actually look at, okay, well, how am I actually spending those dollars? If I'm put in a sandbox where I, all I can eat is healthy food and there's only upside to any decision I make, that's a lot more justifiable for the government to, to put more money into it or to offer more incentives or to find more interesting correlations between certain you know, behaviors and, and, and specific outcomes. Sure. Um, it's a very loaded topic, though. <laughs> Let's look into the future, which I love to do, obviously, being looking at the future of food. And you've said before that you, you know, Season wants to be the Google Health. Sorry, the Google, there's no Google Health. Maybe there is Google Maps of food for consumers. Um, what does that mean? To us, what that means is helping to organize all this information in ways that is actionable, right? I mean, it's, it's an imperfect analogy, but. If you think back to the MapQuest days, you had a paper map, or I mean, certainly you had paper maps. And then we had the first online services where you could plot from here to there and you printed it out and you had turn by turn directions. But, you know, they weren't very good at construction. They had no knowledge of traffic. If you got knocked off tracks in those turn by turn directions, you were at best reading the paper map again. So it was a step forward, but it wasn't all that dynamic. And, you know, you, everyone kind of knows the progression. And today I can get in my car and my phone will connect to it. And I'll say, I want to go from here to A to B. And by the way, uh, find me a Starbucks along the way and avoid traffic. And I prefer not to use tolls. And I can do all that in three seconds. And then I'm going to get turn by turn voice directions, you know, avoiding all the various kind of pitfalls. And it's going to find me the fastest route. And it's a very helpful service. We think about the parallel being 
Well, food data is all around us. Uh, it's exposed in better ways through these digital ordering systems now, but even prior to that, it was available in an analog fashion. It was just too much to really handle in any kind of practical sense, right? I mean, we all could have sat down and plotted here to A to B and found a Starbucks and done that with a phone book and everything too, but you know, probably not many people were doing that. Making it easy makes it possible for people to do. So as we, and this is a long-term project for sure, but as we get better at finding, cataloging, ingesting food data, as we get better at figuring out how to surface that to people and everything else, there's a world in which we can make recommendations to you, restaurant recommendations, menu recommendations, uh, based on whatever factors are important, budget, time, certainly health, taking into account what you ate yesterday, what you ate this morning. You know, you had a big birthday dinner last night with some friends. Great. You should probably have a salad. You know, you had a salad last night. Okay. It's probably all right to have the sandwich or, you know, whatever sort of the factors are. Um, it's relatively easy to imagine that it's a huge undertaking to get from here to there. But that's that's at least roughly what we you know, what we think about with that analogy. Fascinating. Makes a lot of sense. I feel like, yeah, we are in the, we're in the map quest era right now and we're just starting to di- go Google maps or ways with this. What, sure. what do we we're need at best in the map quest era? <laughs> yeah. What do we need to do on the, I mean, we, we touched a little bit on wearables and kind of that being more, I mean, this seems, this vision seems like more in the preventative space, right. Of, of being Google maps. Uh, at least from like a broad, broader consumer perspective, like what, what do we need from the wearable side? What do we need on the AI side to get to that vision where uh, we have knowledge of how all these foods are kind of interacting inside of these black boxes called our bodies and um, that we're making the right decisions because clearly it seems like that data around what the food is on our plate, whether it's coming from the grocery store, it's coming from Uber Eats or it's coming from, yeah, any of these disparate sources, we, we're, we're, we're already, that, that problem is already kind of getting solved today. What else needs to happen? I think there are a number of big things to try to tease apart there. First, I, I would challenge that this is more of a preventative use case. I mean, certainly that is an important thing, I think, for us as a society to get to. But the reality is that today, Someone can fact check this number, but I I believe the official Medicare stat is the average Medicare member has four chronic diseases, right? That's average. So yes, prevention is important for all of us. And hopefully one day that stat is not as true, but there's a huge amount of people that just need care today. It's not a, it's not a niche. So it's not just prevention. In terms of what I think we need to get from here to something that looks like that future, you know, a lot of the wearables are pretty good and, and, you know, I'm no expert, but presumably they'll continue to just improve at sort of standard hardware, you know, refresh rates. I, I think the biggest single thing that's needed and something that we hope we're working on is a motivating use case. You know, I think everyone underestimates how expensive it is to build these these kinds of products, right? I mean, Google Maps is a little, the analogy probably breaks down here because to my knowledge, Google put so much capital and so many resources into the actual mapping, but even just the engineering side of it, if you had sort of a magic wand and, you know, the Google engineering team could have been handed all the map data, the payroll cost was still, I don't know these numbers, but I would imagine into the hundreds of millions, many, many years of very big, very smart engineering teams to build what we use today. And, you know, the the simplicity of these apps hides the complexity that's inside them. And so to get to something like what we've been talking about, you need a business model. You know, you can't, even in the the, the sort of, uh, you know, 20 teens, raising hundreds of millions of dollars against no business model was next to impossible. And I think in a more rational world, which I think we're living in now, you, you can't do that. So, you have to find something that people will pay for today. Uh, and that's part of why we've started with the business model and the sort of populations and, and the approach that, yeah, that we have. 
and, and then presumably the, the wearables and the ecosystem will develop over time as well. But I think a lot of it is creating a situation where you can fund the development of the, the kinds of products. And I think it will be multiple over the timeframes necessary to build something that's actually usable by a consumer, right? Like Google Maps, if Google Maps cost a bunch of money and was super hard to use, most people wouldn't use that either. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Capitalism is definitely um, a good place to start when it comes to, you know, creating inertia towards solving this massive challenge. There's, there's probably very few other approaches. Um, what can you touch on as far as automation and, and the labor shortages facing these two huge industries of, of food on the one hand, we have a million plus worker shortage, I believe last time I checked. And then uh, it seems like somewhat of a healthcare shortage. Obviously season is playing a bigger, a big role in the healthcare professional lives. Um, you know, my doctor can't call me every day and say, did you eat your you know, apple today? I guess, is there anything, how, how important is this potential problem that you, you, you might be solving already? I think it's a really big problem. It may, it is at least as big in healthcare as it is in food. And what I would say is part of what I think we get to do even today is really empower dietitians with better tools, which is important because I think it contributes to their quality of life and their satisfaction with what they're doing, which has been at least a big part of the reason for sort of burnout and you know, churn within that field. Traditionally, dietitians don't get reimbursed for sitting down and attempting to write out a meal plan for you. Uh, they also you know, often will, will say things like, I don't feel particularly confident around my culinary skill, skills. I'm not a chef. I don't necessarily know the patient's culture. I don't know how to really like take their husband and their kids' preferences into account, how to do all the budget. Like it's just, it's so much. And yet many of them, you know, do try from time to time and they find it very frustrating and it's not reimbursable and reimbursement rates for dietitian care are not extraordinarily high to begin with, but they know that it works, right? It is better than nothing. It's better than just the rule set. Building tools for them across the, the sort of clinical spectrum so that they can get as far away from as much manual work as possible, as close to the actual patient care as possible, and to make their advice to patients actionable is, I think, deeply satisfying to most. Uh, and that is a big part of addressing the worker shortage today in, in healthcare, at least in the little corner that we operate in. So, so that's the goal of your software that you're building for these dietitians, like help them, you know, essentially give them these superpowers that they just essentially didn't have before. Absolutely. Give them superpowers that both drive better outcomes, which is why they got into the business. They care. They want to help people get better and make them more efficient. Very interesting. Um, on a personal level, I'd love to hear about a dietary practice that you can't live without or a ritual, or a product, or maybe a, a dish? What is that one thing? I think I have to say season. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm not a, I'm not a diehard adherent to any diet or, or any product or anything else, but I certainly use our product every week to help me order and find food. And uh, I don't personally have any chronic disease, and I try to keep that in mind that I'm not exactly the patient, but it is the best way to improve everything that we're doing and to try to, you know, have build and have empathy for patients. So I'm going to go with season. Dog fooding your own product. I love it. And how have you felt, I guess, is there anything anecdotally you can share, like being a founder, being super busy. And I guess you had some downtime in between Albertsons and, and starting this, I hope, but how have you how have you seen yourself um, kind of your diet your dietary habits and kind of your overall well being kind of anecdotally um, improve by through the, through using your own product? The biggest thing is it helps find recipes. It helps find things that I actually am interested to try and make. It makes it easy to do that. 
and in theory is making me healthier. I think, again, I'm, I'm very fortunate and I know that I started out you know, relatively healthy. I have no acute uh, problems. So there's not there, there's not uh, a big clinical outcome I could point at, but certainly feel better, feel like I'm you know, continuing to learn about food and just generally simplifies my life, which has a lot of value. Yeah, absolutely. Meal, meal planning is no fun as anybody who's probably tried to do it. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who have New Year's resolutions of doing so and will quickly fall off the bandwagon. So good to hear that that that's working for you. Um, I'd love for you to take us the, the rest of the time now to, to kind of plug away at any um, potential partnerships or roles you have open or if anyone wants to kind of get in touch regarding those areas of, uh, you know, getting involved with season, how, how do they get in touch with you? The best way is probably just partnerships at seasonhealth.com. We're certainly looking to meet health plan folks that uh, have a food as medicine need. And there's a, a couple of different ways that we think about that. Certainly looking for talented folks that know healthcare or want to learn healthcare within you know, certain specializations. And otherwise, I appreciate the time and, and, would love to just encourage everybody to think about what they eat. I definitely do and uh, encourage everybody as well. So yeah, thank you so much for talking to us about healthcare and the food system and food is medicine, which is a very uh, interesting area that um, I'm very fascinated by. So thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a first-hand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.